I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. You may want to give this one a miss. Uh, sounds a bit strange. Let me lay it out for you. The pros and the cons of uh, continuing and investing your time in this particular episode of the show, which is approaching number 200. We've been going for about eight years. And so I want to level with you about what you are about to experience or, or maybe what you want to avoid by hitting the stop button and listening or watching something completely different. So here are the pros. On one hand, we've got Thaddeus Segura on, who is uh, an amazing talent. He is uh, works at Williot. He's a vice president. Uh, he joined us to um, bootstrap our um, data science uh, machine learning function. And so he, he knows a lot of interesting things. And he's um, doing a, a stint, uh, heading up a squad of ours on site at one of the biggest retailers in the world, uh, returning to a space that he's super familiar with. So he knows a lot about retail, a lot about data science, and I learn things from him every time I talk to him. On the other hand, the sound is not the best. Uh, we recorded this episode uh, live at the National Retail Federation show, which is the show, the big show, they call it, in New York every year. Everyone in retail gathers together, all the big retailers, Walmart, Best Buy, um, and every major vendor is there. And um, so I took the time to talk to Thaddeus. He's a busy guy. It's tough to get his time. Uh, we were able to sit down and we recorded it, but there's the noise of the show in the background. And you're going to hear a lot of it because it's the end of the show. People are getting rowdy. Um, and you'll even notice, those of you that watch will notice the camera angle changes on Thaddeus about halfway through. So, you know, we're talking and these guys that set the show up and tear it down literally started moving the cameras whilst we were recording. I, I, it really threw me off. I was flabbergasted. But we powered on through. So there's your dilemma. Uh, back in the early days, we got negative comments about the sound, and the sound wasn't good in the early days. It's got a lot better now. This is an exception. You have to decide whether you're going to push through it or not. And uh, I'm going to use a three-level simile to try and capture um, what I think the situation is. And uh, Woody Allen used to tell a joke about, uh, about life. And the simile he used, it's uh, like um, two old ladies talking about a, 
a meal they had which really didn't taste very good. And, uh, you know, the worst thing was the portions were small. So life is uh, similar. It's uh, uh, painful, bitter, full of torment, and then it's all over far too quickly. And I think um, this episode is, is similar. The sound is very good, but uh, it's kind of shorter than normal. It's over too quickly. So you decide. Hope you stick with it. But if you don't, I completely understand. The Mr. Beacon Ambient IoT Podcast is sponsored by Williot, bringing intelligence to every single thing. So Thaddeus, welcome back to the Mr. Beacon Podcast. You're in the Two Times Club. Appreciate it. Happy to be back. I think the first time, I'm just trying to think when it was, I think you joined pretty uh, recently when you were on last time, right? Six months in. I think at this point we're almost for two years. So you have seen an awful lot. You saw a lot in your career at Walmart, um, and you're seeing a lot at Williard. And I want to talk to you about a few things. One is the use cases that are really driving IoT, in particular ambient IoT. What are you seeing? You've been running the data team. You've got a special interest and are leading the team working on-site at one of our biggest customers, one of the biggest retailers in the world. So I think a lot of people are interested in IoT and ambient IoT. Potentially, it's going to be orders of magnitude bigger than IoT. It's really, I started calling it Gen 3 of RFID. It's like Gen 2 is what's out there at the moment, but Gen 3 is this amazing thing. So tell us about the use cases. I also want to talk to you about the cloud and you know part of this new paradigm is cloud computing and whilst I try and avoid the Williot related subjects uh, uh, I think this is particularly interesting and Williot has designed these chips that enable ambient IoT but we don't make any money from them and we're selling them at cost and we're charging for the cloud. And a lot of people like scratching their heads and like, I get why you want to be a cloud company, but really, really, do you need to be one? So I would love to hear from you. What is it that the cloud does in this paradigm and why is it important? And where is it going with respect to uh, AI, machine learning, generative AI? So do you think we have enough to talk about? I think we do. And we're doing this at NRF, and the show's over, and so people are like dismantling everything around us. But I think that will be fine. We've got some very expensive microphones. Hopefully, they'll do the job, and we can focus on, uh, on this. So give us the state of the nation in terms of the use cases that you see driving um, ambient IoT. Where, where's the action at? Absolutely. I think there are a handful of places we're really seeing it catch up. But I think, first of all, I always need to explicitly state what ambient IoT is. That would be a good start. For everyone that doesn't know. So in my mind, ambient IoT is this idea that we have low-cost devices that are getting data constantly with as little infrastructure and as little additional effort as possible. I think both of those things have to be true. On one hand, the labor is getting more expensive than it's ever been. So you don't want to introduce any more labor. And on the second hand, infrastructure is expensive, not just in terms of the devices you install, but as we learned very painfully over the last few years, that running a single power drop in a production environment like a large retailer can be $1,500. So 
the total cost of ownership rapidly grows, even if it's something very simple and very low power. So getting rid of labor and infrastructure costs is really the main benefit of Ambient IoT. And the yeah. idea is that it should just work all the time. So with that explicitly stated, I think the first thing that we're really looking at is disrupting the barcode, as I like to say. So barcodes obviously been around for decades and decades. There are trillions of them a year, which is how many Ambient IoT devices I would like to see out there as well. Yeah, and then that's the number, actually 10 trillion is the number that ABI describe as the addressable market for this technology. And I think it's, I mean, it's guesses. One, the one thing we know about estimates and forecasts is they'll be wrong, but it's indicative of a direction. RFID is probably of the order of 40 billion units a year. So there's a big growth spur. And you know what we can say is there's going to be a huge change in the world if we put a trillion, 10 trillion things online. Um, but then I think people say, well, we're already like 40, 50 billion. That's a lot of tags. What on earth are we going to do with these things? So I think this question of the use cases um, that people will implement is particularly interesting from that perspective. Yes. The number one thing we hear over and over again is people want to know where their stuff is at. You have this vote on the wall here. Do you really know where all your inventory is? And Obviously, the clear. The votes are in, and yes. it seems like some people claim that they know where everything is. I, I want to follow up with those people, but most people don't. Exactly. And so that's the primary thing: is that people want to know. In the most simple case, like retail, did the right merchandise leave the DC? Did it go on the right truck at the right time? Make it to the right store, and then ultimately to the right shelf, and then into a customer's cart, and then did it actually leave? And there are so many things that can go wrong all along that path. And historically, to answer any one of those questions discreetly, you would have to install infrastructure or introduce labor. If you want to know if the right thing went on the right truck, you scanned. If you wanted to understand if something didn't properly sell in like a, a clothing store, you're almost blind unless you want to follow that person around and actually interview them and ask them, oh, did it not fit? Can I get you a different size? And so that becomes very, very cost prohibitive to do at scale. What you can do with Ambient IoT is you apply one tag or one smart device, and then all throughout the chain as you're getting that data, it'll go up to the cloud, which we'll talk about later, and you're able to answer all those questions with a single technology rather than introduce things incrementally and drive up your costs. Very good. So what we're doing is we have this trade-off. We're trying to reduce labor, and there's this tension between labor and scanning. We can't have people being followed around uh, and carrying expensive scanners and doing all these manual things. So it seems like we're in a space where the name of the game 10 years ago or 20 years ago was absolutely minimize labor. So if we can scan something when we ship it, let's assume that what we ship is what's received. One of the things that I learned from you, which just shocked me, was how little scanning there is that goes along. Not that scanning is good, it takes time and it tends to be inaccurate because there's human beings involved, but what is the level of resolution that exists today in terms of visibility of the supply chain? Very little. When, once you're in the store, very little. Anywhere you can scan at scale, it's not bad, but a lot of things are built on what we call assumed receipt. So if a truck comes in, you don't have time to scan every single box of 3,000 cases. So you assume they're all there. You might audit 2% of the time and extrapolate that accuracy to everything you receive from that supplier. 
And then you may even introduce fines if they deviate outside of that range. Within a distribution center, there's not a lot of chaos. It's pretty organized and there's a lot of scanning in and scanning out. Where the confusion actually happens is in the store. Once it hits the back door of the store, there's very little scanning and it's complete chaos. So there's typically no scan when a truck is unloaded, at least in any of the retailers I've worked with. There's no scan when it actually goes on shelf. So what ends up happening is you assume that everything that was on that invoice is entirely in the store. And then once you assume it's in the store, you typically assume it's on the shelf until you get some sort of scan like in the back room that says otherwise. What that means is that on days that your labor is low or you have call outs or maybe there's extreme weather and people can't come to work, all that merchandise that came in, you're saying it's on the shelf and ready for a customer. They're looking on their phone or they're ordering online or ordering through Instacart and it shows available. But what they can't see is it's available in the store, but it's still in the back room in a case or it's still at the dock even on a truck that hasn't been unloaded. And so adding more granularity actually gets you closer to the ground truth and allows you to actually promise the right merchandise to the customers and tell them the true state of the inventory you have in the building. So it seems like the answer to that is, let's give everyone some more handheld scanners and start scanning, boys. You could. Why, why not do that? Yeah, I think every scan on average done by a person, one, we see somewhere around 50% compliance with most processes that require scanning. And two, there's incremental labor costs associated. Okay. Especially as you're seeing a lot of retailers move away from laser scanners towards optical scanners, it's even slower for whatever reason. If you're using a phone, you have to unlock phone, log into the app, pull it open, the camera has to focus. It doesn't seem like a lot, but if you're doing it 3,000 times a day times 5,000 stores, that adds up very, very quickly. That makes sense. Okay. So maybe we can't have people scanning. And the fact that the thing that has surprised me is the compliance issue. And it's not like these people don't want to disobey. It's just that they forget or they're under huge pressure and they don't want to get shouted about. So they're like, oh, well, I'm going to do this thing. Okay. So um, I think at the top level, then we want that visibility. Let's double click in here and get to what are the use cases that trickle to the top of the priority list and what are the metrics that those drive? Absolutely. I think when you think about ROI, it's a balancing act between investment and the return you get on that investment. So pallet tracking is a really easy place to start. If you're tracking at the pallet level, there's not a lot of investment in whatever sensor you're using. For us, it's a tag. So you can tag that pallet and for almost no extra cost, you can track that all the way through and make sure the right merchandise is making it to the right store and ultimately in the right cooler if it's cold chain compliant. Now, if you want to double click another layer down, we see the unit economics of case level tracking making a lot of sense. So if you're actually tracking these cases, then you can understand things around, was it actually stocked to the proper shelf? Did it go on to the proper shelf or is it still sitting into the back room? And then even understanding when that box is thrown away to get like a termination signal to understand where it's at in its life cycle. So those are the things we're seeing today. In terms of item level tracking, there's also a lot of different value you can have as well. But when you go to item level tracking, your costs also increase by an order of magnitude. Yes. And that's one of the reasons I think that our idea has struggled to get traction. It does become very expensive when you even add three to four cents or five cents to each individual item. I think you know, my personal view, and I think this is an area where we differ, is I think there's a world where item level tracking works when you go all the way for, to the end, when you start cradle to grave or even cradle to cradle. I was actually hearing someone talking about cradle to cradle when you reuse the product 
again and again. And, and obviously it makes sense for high value items, but my hypothesis is that if you move to a subscription model for toothpaste, even if the tag costs four cents or whatever it costs, it's worth it because you just saved yourself a bunch of Google ads and uh, labor costs in the store. And you can basically see the demand signals that mean you can, can cut costs in the production. And uh, maybe I'm trying to create a full spit of uh, disagreement and conflict no, I, between us. But uh, I actually am aligned with you. I think where we might differ is our opinion on timeline. Okay. Like, I do think that eventually will happen. Yeah. And you see it today, like how hard Amazon works to get you to subscribe to whatever it is that you're consuming. Right. It's like the default option so often. Yes. But in my experience, I actually don't like it. I almost never choose it because I can't ever get the demand right. Right. There's almost nothing I consume at like a linear perspective other than maybe like cat litter. Yes. And that's a very easy thing to like go to the store. I totally agree. I, I actually am on a subscription model with pool, swimming pool test kits. This may sound like a very yuppie, so I apologize for anyone that is resentful about my swimming pool, but it's California, you got to do it. So I subscribe to these test kits and they are accumulating like crazy and I'm not actually paying for them, but it just makes me feel horrible. So I think the subscription approach, especially if you're subscribing to a category, like I want to subscribe to not just one sort of cereal, but all the cereal. I want to subscribe to all the herbs and spices and tell me about the ones that I would like that. Uh, so I, I think there's just so much value uh, there. And I believe that this is why the, the economics are maybe crazy. So I'm going to argue for shorter term breakthrough. And I think someone will do it and they'll, they'll suddenly expose all these efficiencies because they have loyalty from the customer. And I think their stock price will go up because they've got a recurring business model. And I think it'll be a bit like Tesla. You know, Tesla's valuation is bigger than uh, all the other car companies. Does that mean that they're making more cars? No, absolutely not. But they're, they're doing the thing in the future. And I think product as a service is the thing of the future. And people's uh, cost of capital will go way down if they do it. And I think it's going to happen in three years. <laughs> So there's something explicit that I, I mean, something you have implied here that I want to say explicitly. Okay. Because I think you need something like Ambient IoT to fuel that breakthrough. Yes. Today, you have this inaccuracy. Your test kits are piling up because they're not being used. Yes. But I think about something like laundry detergent. Yes. Having a sensor on there that's low cost and disposable that can actually send a signal to my Google Home or my Alexa to automatically reorder, it's truly demand-based because I know that I'm getting low. That makes sense, and that's something I would subscribe to. And that's one of the benefits, I think, of Ambient IoT and why that will facilitate the transition you're talking about. Yeah. Still don't think it'll be three years. No, I love it. You're, I feel like we just switched switch roles and uh, you're doing a better job of interviewing me than I am of you. So let me try and switch the tables back again and say, what are the other use cases that you're seeing, maybe ones that are surprising in the Ambient IoT world that uh, where there's, there may be value? Yeah. One we heard a lot this week, a lot. Two that surprised me. One was goods not for resale. The things you don't think about that are just the cost of doing business, like ladders and chairs and even desks and dumpsters. Yes. So many of these things go missing in these environments. They're complex, they're chaotic, and they're expensive. And so having the ability to track goods you don't necessarily sell is actually a pain point that we heard a lot this week. The second are just devices. 
anything electronic, even if you don't sell them, like handhelds and even um, POS pricing apparently gets stolen a lot. And so I think asset protection is really a, a big focus right now. And having the ability to be able to track those items that doesn't require a $30 or $40 sensor to know where your things are at is a really compelling, interesting environment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. What's your take on items in transit? Again, this is one where we've kind of had a little debate off, off, off camera. Um, um, so in the past, the idea was... You scan things going on the truck, you scan them coming off, but you didn't really know what was going on on the way. Yeah. For me, I like things that are actionable. Yes. Uh, I think seeing the data, there's some incredibly interesting things that happen in transit. We've watched merchandise freeze and thaw and freeze and thaw. I've watched Halloween candy in the middle of summer hit 114 degrees Fahrenheit. You send someone to the store to inspect it. It's exactly, it's almost like uh, like liquid. Once you're inside of there. Yes. So you see very interesting things in transit. I don't know how you act on that. Sending a a signal to that truck when it was hitting 114 degrees, they can't drive in the shade. I don't know what they would actually do. So as I think about like the ROI of those insights, for me, I don't see the action there, especially when it comes to ambient. With cold chain, there's stuff you can do in talking to sensors and changing set points. Um, And so I have a different opinion there now than I did before. Yeah, that's, that's fair. But we are seeing, um, I mean, there's already a telematics industry. There's already, the, the containers are starting to be more and more connected. And so why not share that data using the tags? But the key is going to be people figuring out how to take actions on it. You know, my view is if I can see that I'm destroying large parts of my inventory in transit, then I'll probably figure out how to action. But I... Uh, you have more experience in that field, and, and I accept your skepticism about that as a, as a breaking factor. And again, my view is someone's going to do it, and they're going to show the value, and then all us uh, pundits and, in your case, experts, uh, will we'll see the results of uh, what people do with the data. That's the exciting thing. We're starting to see things that we've never seen before. Um, very good. Well, let's move on to the next area that I wanted to uh, pick your brains about, which is uh, most people look at what is happening with ambient IoT and they get postage stamp compute devices. They understand they're talking to commodity radios that are a fraction of the cost. That means we can get more visibility. So why can't I just take, what about all these software layers? Why can't I just take my existing systems or 
easily write new systems and take that beacon data and or tag data and do something. Why do I need a cloud? And especially Williot, get back to designing some new chipsets. Stop getting in the cloud. Why the cloud? Absolutely. So my favorite analogy lately for this is, do you use Google Maps? I do. Okay. And now imagine if instead of saying turn left, turn right, it just yelled longitude and latitude at you the whole time. Oh, yeah, that would be bad. Probably would be deeply effective <laughs> yeah. and very annoying. And I think that's what a lot of sensors are. Yes. They're telling you temperature and humidity and all these other things, but it needs to be turned into a product to be made usable. You need the turn left, turn right, and that's the value of the cloud. It could be done locally as well, like you do with Google Maps sometimes, but really like all of that information can come together. So for me, in my mind, the cloud does a lot of things, and we've learned a lot about this over the last couple of years. We started with really general models that would tell you things like location. And that was great in very broad spectrums. But there's always this trade-off between generalizability and accuracy. And what we personally found is that a lot of our customers needed more specific, more accurate models. And so we actually came up with a way to train custom machine learning models that would only be possible through the cloud. So what we do is we'll actually go on site, we'll gather labeled training data around the problems they're trying to solve, like whether the right item went onto the right truck which is really hard to do from an RF perspective, and be able to give them that prediction with a very high degree of accuracy. So that's an example of going from longitude and latitude to the actual turn right, turn left. But I think a lot of people feel like, okay, yeah, there's a bit of complexity there, but what about this RF issue? Why, why is there an RF, RF issue? And is it really that difficult to deal with? Absolutely. So if you think about traditional technologies like RFID, they're great at counting. It's a strong wave, bounces off an antenna, gives you an ID back. And you get something called return signal strength. And people think, okay, I can just look at the return signal strength and understand where something's at. And maybe one point's not enough, maybe I need a few points and I can triangulate. The challenge is that there's a lot of things that impact return signal strength. So I could have a reflection. So I could have a, something right here, an asset right here, and a receiver in my hand and these could be very close together, but my wave could actually travel way across the room off the wall and then bounce back to the receiver. Okay, so the, the, the route between A and B is not necessarily a direct route. Correct, and then you get into like more nuanced things like antenna polarization, like if this antenna is aligned with this antenna and how this is moving oh. in three-dimensional space. So I move the tags like that, then the signal strength is gonna change, but the distance hasn't changed, but you just completely confused my algorithm that's using signal strength. And I guess if the Tags like that, even more. Yes, it's three-dimensional, so. Okay. Yes. And then beyond that, you also have things like line of sight issues. So if you have an obstruction in the way, especially in environments where people are walking through, we're 90-something percent water, which is not conducive to RF. Right. So in any of those situations, you don't have enough information to be able to tell you location using just RF. So what we do is like each of our devices are actually a computer. When they flip on, there's 80 columns of data that are transmitted back to the cloud. And those become inputs into the machine learning models. And that's how we actually train these things to make very intelligent decisions about where things are at. So we're using machine learning to take all of this ambiguity and complexity and spot some patterns that give us some simple information about where the, the thing is. Exactly, yeah. And the machine learning is not magic. It's just math done very rapidly that kind of self-organizes. So I could write manual code to make a decision tree in every single location and say, if it was seen by this bridge, 
and the RSSI was stronger than this, and the temperature was greater than this, then it's in this situation. And do that tens of thousands of times. Or I could run one line of code after I've done all my pre-work, and it'll do all that for me very, very well. And that becomes the model that I can then use across multiple accounts. All right, so what I've observed is you've got a ton of smart data analysts that are harnessing these machine learning uh, algorithms in order to restore simplicity and tell us where the inventory is. Is it on the truck? Is it at the loading dock? Is it further into the warehouse? All that stuff. But it still takes people, pretty expensive people, uh, um, who work for Williot to help do that. And it takes time as well. Um, uh, give me some hope that this is going to get simpler and easier. What are, what are you doing to streamline this? Absolutely. So I think there's a lot of different ways to go about it. And we started with very general models that weren't specific, but very general, but not super accurate. They went to this world where we have these very manual models that I just described. But my big focus right now is how do we scale? We're seeing incredible demand arguably more than we can handle. So the question then becomes, how do you copy and paste that and make it very scalable? So we're working on algorithms now that are faster to train, that can be trained by non-technical people. And a great example is Eric, who's actually on your team, who's a very technical guy, but not a data scientist by trade, was able to go into a store and in 30 minutes, place a couple of calibration tags, train a model, and then turn around and deploy with 100% accuracy. And so he's able to learn subzones in a small retail format, and then be able to understand which rack these different items are on without being a data scientist. So you said you trained the model, and that sounds like you need a PhD, but can you describe how would you train this data model? Absolutely. In his situation, he placed a couple tags and hit start. What happened behind the scenes is it's looking at all the different attributes that we can see and creating an ideal representation of what that space looks like mathematically. Okay. And then once that converges in that mathematical idealized form, It then looks at all the different items it sees and compares those states to the other states and makes a prediction about which form it's closest to. So that's pretty much all it's doing. All of it's abstracted away into code. He just hit start. So I set up some readers. I put some tags on assets. Maybe I move them around the store a bit. And um, that basically trains the the algorithms uh, about what the footprint is of, of this environment. And this kind of reminds me, gets me thinking back to indoor location. And I, I saw companies do similar things. You, you want to know where, um, where the phone is and they, they had training processes there. But here, rather than one phone that's moving around, you potentially have 20,000 inventory items that are kind of using that same training, which is a fairly simple process. Exactly. I, I was absolutely gobsmacked when I saw this. I was like... Um, you know, we had no time to get ready and we certainly didn't have the staff available to customize the algorithms and the ability to get in and get out was phenomenal. So hats off to you for doing that. So let's, let's wrap this up. Seems like they're, they're starting to dismantle the show around us. We've already had people <laughs> interrupt this interview at least twice. So um, where are things going with AI? Um, and uh, of course, machine learning is AI. We've talked about that. But, but what's gonna, what, are you, what are your expectations in terms of generative AI, large language models? How does that play in with all of this? A lot. I think 
I talked about the trade-off a couple times between generalizability and accuracy. And that's true within the same generation of model. Generative AI is an example of like taking a step change where you get the generalizability and the accuracy at an unprecedented level because an actual technological breakthrough. And so what I think will happen is those exact things. You'll see models that are more generalizable and as accurate. The challenge then becomes how expensive are they? So you see people using ChatGPT as a calculator, like what's two plus two? Uh, which is not the best way to use a six billion parameter model when you could just use a calculator. Right. Uh, so there's a consideration there around cost, but I think that's what you'll generally see is that these things will break through and then you'll get both of those together. To be more concrete about how we're using it today, I think as a tech company, there's a lot of ways you can use it to enhance the efficiency of your organization. I, one of my big tasks for last year was to build a generalizable library so we could do POCs faster and not have to write a bunch of code from scratch. And that honestly went out of the window because we didn't need it anymore. Like ChatGPT could write the code. We'd be able to type in exactly what we needed. 80% of it was done, which was the exact point of the library. So it's making everyone more efficient. It's making it easier to learn really technical concepts like antenna polarization. And so that's how we're using it internally. Externally, there's a way to use it to enhance the product, which is a lot more complicated. Generative AI is more than just large language models. That's one example. Generative art is another example. You can use the same techniques of a generator and a discriminator to build fake training data, to simulate different environments. So there will be more theoretical applications that customers won't necessarily see that'll use the same principles that won't be as flashy or as pretty, um, but will still give you the same enhancements that allow you to break through so you get the generalizability and the accuracy in a single model. Okay. What about in the boardroom? Do you, uh, are you expecting uh, the uh, CEO or the SVP or the EVP uh, to use this with all of this data we're producing? We do, but we don't really want them to even know that it's happening. In the same way, I've seen 20 AI assistants here this week, and the idea is that you can't tell. The idea is that eventually the technology is so good, you don't know you're talking to a person or to a robot. Yeah. It's the same thing. Like Ultimately, we're still going back to that turn left, turn right example. You don't know that Google Maps picked you up on a side street because it's being smoothed out and all that's hidden from you. In the same way, maybe we miss a read and we're able to actually infill it using generative tactics. So we saw five other tags, but we missed one of them, but we knew they were traveling in a cluster. So we can actually impute that and make the same decision, even if we might've missed it at that point. Eventually the stuff will get so good and we'll be so confident, they'll be using the data, but won't even know that it's generative on the back end. Okay. I mean, what I was thinking about was just, you know, um, scenario uh, analysis questions. Uh, you know, there's uh, a conflict in this part of the world. What's, what's, how's this likely to impact um, product availability in all my stores? Or, uh, you know, where, where, where do you see the slack in my supply chain today? That sort of question, is that feasible? It is feasible. I think, I don't know if that's a problem we'll specifically solve. Um, and then one of the challenges you'll face is the, the recency of the data, which is a big challenge for LLMs. But there are new things that are coming out that will help bridge that gap ah. that will allow them to make those decisions closer to real time. So Thaddeus, have you had time to think about your three most <laughs> meaningful songs? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just about so much. Uh, and like trying to have it brainstorm songs for it. All right. And it did not come up with any good recommendations. Nothing good. No. Okay. So I went with uh, three Eminem songs last time. And uh, 
number one piece of feedback everyone gives is giving me a hard time about the Eminem songs mm. more than any other content in the last <laughs> Mr. Beacon Pod. Okay. okay. So I don't have a good answer for you. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. Um, we could have cities. We're going to have something. Yeah, yeah, what are your, your favorite, favorite cities? cities? Really like uh, New York. Yeah. I mean, we're in New York now, and it's freezing cold, but there's something very invigorating about it beyond the, just the physical aspect. What, what, what is it that you like about New York? Growing up, my dad worked here on and off for probably three or four years, actually until 9-11. So we used to come out here three or four times a year. And first of all, there were real seasons coming from California. You really just have like fall and spring most of the year. So I did like the snow. And then second, it's a real city. I live in San Francisco now, and it's this big. And you go from here to here, and you're across the entire city. New York, you can walk and walk and walk, and it feels like it never ends. Yeah. And it has real public transport. Oh, my God, yes. Yes. And you could eat at a different restaurant every day of your life and still not get through all the restaurants. Not even scratch the surface. Yeah. And people don't go to bed at 10 p.m. So back home, everything is shut down here. It's that is one of the things that I always... Now I'm like terribly old. It doesn't bother me so much. But when I first came to America, I just couldn't believe all the restaurants were shutting at like 8, 9 o'clock. Uh, it's nuts. Okay, so we're agreed on New York. What's, uh, what's your second city? I mean, is San Francisco in the top three? You just badmouthed it. San Francisco's so, uh, up there. Hopefully you're not planning to go back. I, like <laughs> I lived in Oakland for a couple of years. I actually liked Oakland better than San Francisco. Oh, my God. Well, you know, I was born in San Francisco, so I'm deeply oh, you're biased. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up in Sacramento. And I remember going down to San Francisco as soon as I could drive, like 20 years ago. And it was just a very different city. It wasn't like pure tech the way it is now. It was a lot more lively, a lot more art, a lot more culture. And just people just being different and expressing themselves. And it feels like a lot of that has been pushed across the bridge to Oakland. And so it's a lot of like the San Francisco I grew up with but now just in a different city of Oakland. And is that just because it's more affordable in Oakland? Or? I think that's a big factor. I think there's so much tech in San Francisco that it's hard to do anything other than tech. Where when I lived in Oakland, you'd meet someone there at a glass blower or a metal sculptor and from all these different walks of life. And it's not just what series are you and what's your unique value proposition, which is I feel like the conversations I have in a blind or in an elevator. Yeah, yeah. Very good. And so what's city number three? City number three. I actually really love San Diego. Believe it or not. That's why I took oh, my uh, yeah. opportunity I have to go down there. Yeah. I thought that's where I'd end up uh, living, but my wife and I are in San Francisco and she's the boss, so that's where I'll stay. Okay. Yeah, my wife uh, was in tears when we first looked at moving down to San Diego. She, uh, I think the reason she was in tears was less about that San Diego was in some way objectionable, but it just meant that it was so nice that it became very apparent that we, there was no excuse for not moving there, and that meant leaving her family and her friends. Um, and now, but now she's made friends, and uh, actually her parents moved down, and uh, our fam the family visits. So I agree. I, I, I think uh, it's, it's a great city. So we disagree about San Francisco, but that's from a position of relative ignorance on my part and a bias because I was born there. Okay. Well, um, Thaddeus, thanks so much. I enjoyed the chit-chat. Disappointed about the songs. I have to go back and check out the other episodes to see which Eminem ones you, uh, uh, you went for. But thanks very much for being on the podcast. Of course. Thank you. 
All right. You made it to the end of the show. And to be honest, I really wasn't expecting that. So I, I got to thank you. Uh, I've also got to thank uh, Aaron Hammock, who uh, had to do extra duty in trying to clean this up and make sense of, uh, of, of what I gave him. Um, and Brooke Ellsworth, who has been uh, publishing our, our show and, and promoting it. So until next time, uh, be safe uh, and uh, in, enjoy life. It's all over far too quickly.